0: This is the Baymaw Podcast with Aaron Geiselman I'm her co-host Brent Billings Today we're joined by special guest Marty Solomon Author of the newly launched book Asking Better Questions of the Bible Marty, welcome to the show <laughs>
1: <laughs> That was the most surreal experience ever I <laughs> love it
0: <laughs> Well... Normally, I would want to hear more from our guests right away, but let's actually talk about our host, Aaron. <laughs> Aaron is the uh, leader of the launch team for Marty's book, Asking Better Questions of the Bible. Um, she is an assistant professor in nursing at Indiana University Kokomo and an active member of the Baymont Kokomo discussion group. Uh, yeah, anyway, welcome, Aaron.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for allowing me to come in and, and help interview Marty on my new podcast. Oh, don't say it like that. Seize the
1: host. He's the, seize that host <laughs> chair. Say thanks for coming on my podcast, Marnie. I just love it. Just live it up while you can. It's beautiful. <laughs> thanks
2: for co-hosting my podcast, Brent Billings. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah. And I, I
0: I, do feel like we would have to ask uh, Steve, you know, if active is the word that he would describe your participation in the group. I feel like your, your group is I mean, active describes the whole group. I've I have not seen a more like interactive set of people, and I don't get to watch every group. Sure, interact. You guys have a channel on the Baymo Slack. Oh that, yeah. Uh, I, I think you guys might be the only discussion group that really. There's one other group that has started recently, but you guys are the only one who really uses that space. Yeah. Um, and so I get to see a little bit, and it's it's a fun. You guys are a fun group. I've never had a chance to visit, but it's but it's fun.
2: Oh, we'd love to have you. We it we meet. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we religiously meet every Tuesday night at seven thirty. Often don't get done till 12 o'clock, midnight. If we've solved all the world problems, it's usually about one in the morning. We make sure our base kids are to bed, and um, we call each other our havara. It's been a great um, experience. We've got people from different churches. There's about um, I don't want to remember off the top of my head. There's about 10 of us We've got eight really active members. And when I say active, we do friends giving. We have, we, we really dive in and um, tear it up. So we do um, two episodes a week, um, three if they're short. I love it. Yeah. Steve does a great job facilitating. He types up word for word notes from your podcast. So if you need, <laughs> if you need, some, uh, help with that. He's probably got it.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, we should probably turn to our guest, Marty and Marty. I'd love to hear like how, you know, Aaron and how you got connected with, uh, with the Kokomo group.
1: I, boy, how did I get connected originally? It's hard for me to even remember my original connection i'm
0: sure there were some emails but you have had a chance to actually meet them in person right
1: yeah i I, i'm trying to remember like where the original all i know is that there was a road trip i did and i was going around and i can't remember if i reached out to a group on the map in kokomo indiana or if somebody saw on the messenger and reached out to me i can't remember who but I, i stopped by this group and i mean it's in kokomo like a, that's an awesome town name, but B, it's like in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. Would you say that's fair, Aaron? That's
2: pretty fair. We're um, yeah. north of Indianapolis, so in south of Fort Wayne, we're kind of smack dab in the middle.
1: Yeah, so I thought, well, and I remember our, our whole family visited, and we just had such a good time. Like, yeah, there's all the activity that we get to see on Slack, but it, w- it was so uh, authentically, like parallel to the real life experience like they just had it it was just such an amazing group of people and and diverse group of people as far as where they were coming from and you know church involvement and it was just it was wonderfully the whole conversation was wonderfully refreshing so I kind of um yeah I built a special little relationship with Bayma Kokomo they even gave me a little gift that sits on my bookshelf and I think about them often so that's where I met Aaron was at that and she said all kinds of fun things that I won't repeat, but uh, just getting to know her was all was all kinds of fun. So I I remember, um, yeah, I was I wasn't even gonna do a launch group for my book, a launch team at all. It was just one more thing I didn't want to have to worry about. And I'm trying to learn how to delegate. I'm really bad at <laughs> everybody. I'm really bad at delegation. But I I can't remember, but I remember I thought I remembered, I don't even know if this is true. I thought I remembered Aaron saying, if you ever, you know. If you're a write a book, I want to write your forward, and I'm like, well, we didn't write a forward, but maybe she'd help with my launch, <laughs> and she said yes, and I was so pumped, and it's been like the greatest help and so much fun, and so Aaron is awesome and amazing and a, a wonderful host for the Baymont podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, Aaron does have a whole bunch of questions for you about your book, uh, which, as this episode is published, is out. Uh, anyone who pre-ordered should have it in their hands for a couple of days at least already. Um, mm. So Aaron has some questions for you about the whole, I mean, could be could be anything, anything related to the book. She's going to grill you and I'm looking forward yeah. to it.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> scared. Is this what it feels like to be a guest on my podcast? Oh my god!
2: Yeah. And I didn't send you the questions ahead of time.
1: I know. And at least I do that to the guests. Man, this is rough. And okay, I do that for you
2: too, so... This is special. <laughs> all right. So first of all, just a shameless plug. Um, you can also hear it on audio. So it'll be available on Kindle and um, through martysolomon.com books if you haven't ordered it and on Amazon or wherever you order your favorite books. Um, Marty, I have a great question for you. Just to start you off, I'm ready. how did you know this needed to be a book? And what are your greatest hopes and expectations after putting it out into the universe? And one other question, how did you decide what stays and what goes?
1: Man, you may have to remind me of those three separate questions. right. I'm going to start with the first one. Um, I didn't. Uh, the answer to the first one, when, how did I know that this needed to be a book? I, I didn't know at all. I, I never would have... Um. And I don't know, I I never know how people view me, and I'm sure everybody views me in different ways. I'm just a normal dude, and I'm not nearly on some weird celebrity status like any, like, uh, I just didn't think my voice was one that was book worthy. Like, I read books. I love books. Books are amazing and incredible. But I'm not important enough to write a book. And that's silly. I mean, I would never tell anybody else that, but that's what I told myself. And uh, and I had somebody approach me from a church in Washington, D.C., a good friend, uh, a church of mine, and they said, I work at a publisher and I think you need to write a book. And I prayed about it and talked about it with a few people and said, okay, well, let's see where this goes. And it didn't work out with that publisher um, at all. Like It, was, it just wasn't going to be a good fit. I think we all knew that. But that publisher said, this is important enough that I'm going to use my connections to help you talk to somebody. And that led to an agent and my agent is amazing. And that led to book offers. And then, so I never really wanted, like, I wasn't seeking this out. It was other people saying, you need to be writing somehow. Like you need to have, it was other people that said, you need to have a book in the world. And i yeah, uh, the whole thing's been super weird. Super weird. Uh and then second question, what was it?
2: The hopes, what are your greatest hopes and expectations after putting it out there?
1: <sighs> well, I hope I hope everything that as a creator, I love being a creator and and the book is just one other thing that I get to create as an artist of sorts, a teacher, whatever. Um I hope that anything that I create, any resources just helpful for I mean my passion is the Bible. That shouldn't surprise anybody. My passion is I guess theology, I think it's more Bible and the world of the Bible. I I think I grew up with Bible. My parents gave me Jesus and the Bible. My evangelical fundamentalist upbringing gave me Jesus and the Bible. Like Jesus and the Bible, and I'm I'm a pretty big fan of both Jesus and the Bible. That is just one of my greatest passions and I have been frustrated by what we often do with the Bible. And so my greatest hope is, is that any resource I create, the book included, is just a tool that helps people unlock better readings of the Bible, sets them free to ask questions and anything that just makes people go, I, I didn't think I loved the Bible, but I think I love the Bible. That That's, man, if people ever feel that, it that is what I, I, I live for those moments. That's what God's made me to do. So so that's that. And I can remember the third question. It was what, what stays and what goes?
2: Yeah, how do you decide?
1: <laughs> I feel like writing 55,000 words was really hard. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was more about how can I write more? Now, there was a point where we were actually trimming, but we did very little, very, very little trimming in the process. It was more about what else... And and really, it wasn't like I'm out of words. It was like, ugh, of all the things I could say, and maybe that's really what your question is too, like, of all the things I could say about this topic, what part do I say? Like, where that was most glaringly true is the chapter on the Gospels. It's like, goodness, do we do we talk about Pardes? That has its own tricky little elements to it. Do we talk about, like, what parts of, of Jesus do we talk about? Because there's a whole lot of... So what what do we focus on and why... And I think that process for, for me was just guided by, this is a book and, and I'm sure a ton of people that listen to the podcast will read it, but I'm assuming there will be people that have never listened to my podcast and may never, like this may be one of the few like touch points they have with, with my body of work. So how can I make sure that this tool like on its own in a vacuum has enough, like it's useful. Um so if something's going to open up a can of words that really isn't going to be useful to somebody, let's not give them that tool. How can we focus on the tools that somebody's going to be able to take away and say I can I can read the Bible, I can ask questions effectively because I read this book. So that's kind of what helped guide that process, I think.
2: Okay.
0: I do think that would be my hope for the book is that people who are not interested in a podcast And podcasts are very popular, but it's still only a subset Mm -hmm. of the population. So for people who aren't interested in that kind of format, it gives them an entry point into like what the, the content that I have found so compelling and so powerful and so enriching to my faith and like believed in that enough to, you know, volunteer and make the podcast for many years before it became my job. Like I believe in it and I want more people to hear about it. And so... If I could just throw in my own hope for it, that is, that is my hope is that it just becomes more accessible to people who wouldn't otherwise uh, know anything
1: about it.
2: Yeah. To widen your reach, right. And reach more corners out there. I think that's fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's, yeah, I I think the whole experience has been, and it's not about like building a bigger platform for me. It really isn't, but it is about like the podcast isn't going to be for everybody. Mm -hmm. That's not the... So can we create resources that can provide some of the same helpful tools for people that are going to use different kinds of tools and consume different kinds of content? That's my, um, yeah, I, yeah. How can I help people that podcasts aren't their deal? Um, can we do something for that group too? And can we do something for this group that doesn't read books? Yeah. Can we do that? That's a, a joy for me.
2: That's a great way to to reach people with different ways of consuming information and knowledge and Mm-hmm. Still fulfill that curiosity, and I love that.
1: I have to learn how to use TikTok here. So oh, TikTok!
2: My daughter, and not
1: because I want to yes. be a TikTok personality. Everybody, that is not. But yeah. for college students, which are one of my greatest passions, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to get in these mediums that they're in and use them effectively. So we'll, see. <laughs> we'll see.
2: <laughs> the next question I wanted to know is um, a lot of people have asked about, and you kind of touched on this already, but they've they've asked about the process of making your book a reality. So you kind of shared about um, how you were originally approached. And um, can you share about the process and how it's different from what you've done before? Because you have written before. We've read some of your commentaries and blog posts, and we've heard you on the mm-hmm. podcast. We've heard you on YouTube. We've heard you in all these different mediums. This is another layer how is this different from what you've done before? And can you talk about that process a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is different. Writing is is hard, but there's also some real pros that come uh, from, I mean, you can really choose your words carefully and they get edited by an incredible team. And um, and so there's some really nice things about writing too that's different from the mediums that I probably gravitate towards before writing. But I really enjoyed it, the, the whole process. Now, I've been told... Uh, I I do not know this from experience. I'm I'm listening to other experienced authors. I've was able to take part in um in a couple of writing cohorts. One of them was J.R. Briggs. We've we've had him on the podcast before. Brent, you could put that in the show notes too. Uh he has something called the writing life or the writer's life. It's an online kind of a a curriculum training for authors. And I was doing that. And I think somewhere in there, Jr. made the point that your first book is kind of already inside of you. It's the one that you've been for years and years, maybe since you were even little, like it's been, it's been germinating and you've carried it around and your first book just kind of comes out of you, spills out of you very easily. It's the next books that come after where you've kind of said that that initial wave has gone out and now, and now you've really got to get in there and choose your words and, and truly create. And I feel like that was certainly true. For me, I've heard a lot of authors. I talked to a a handful that said they just write every day, like a little bit every day. I make sure that I get up and I write. A lot of of authors said that. I kind of knew intuitively that was not going to be... I want to get into a space and be very focused and just crank out all kinds of productive work all at once. So I got away on a writing retreat. We have some awesome listeners. Uh, Again, uh, I met them in Indiana, in Fort Wayne. They now live in Tennessee, and uh, they let me come stay in their house at, at Chattanooga, and I just wrote for a week. I just got up at seven in the morning and just wrote for eight, nine, ten hours, and then I got I was done, and I enjoyed the rest of the evening and, and got out and about, but I just spent seven days just writing, probably six days, I'm sure, because I took a, a, a Sabbath, but and I just did that, and I wrote the whole first draft and sent that away. And I've got to tell you, I love, I love the team at NavPress. They're the ones, they're, they're my publisher and, uh, the editors at NavPress, Caitlin and, um, Elizabeth, especially Elizabeth. She's one that had to do the real, the real hard work of line editing with my stubborn spirit. But, um, Caitlin just was so helpful and Elizabeth was awesome. And that team was just, they made the process not just easy. They made it fun. I was dreading editing. I was dreading revision. And I remember they sent back their first request of like, can you make these edits? Can you shape this chapter? Can you deal with this? And I got away for one other week. I went to some other supporters that gave me a place at Myrtle Beach and got away for one more week. And I made all the revisions and sent that off. And then we just kind of fine-tuned it and I mean, it really was that simple this time around. I have a feeling if there is a next time, and I kind of hope there will be, that process is going to be far more complicated and and it, and it will take far, uh, a lot more time. But that was the process. And it was it was fun. Like, it was a whole new challenge. It was a whole new energy. And it was. It was, it was a ton of fun. But that's what it looked like two weeks, really, a, a week of rough drafting and a week of revising. And then. And then a whole bunch of emails back and forth.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. So are you ready for the next?
1: Absolutely.
2: All right. Can you talk about... We're going to shift gears a little bit, actually. We're going to talk about the book and what's in it. So let's talk about your toolbox of literary devices. Mm. And um, you discuss in the book how it can benefit these three um, groups of people, scholars, skeptics, and truth seekers alike. How can it benefit... That diverse of a group of people that kind of spans a large group
1: yes um, uh, an awareness of these things is so helpful. You say scholars skeptics and truth seekers and I would I would blush at the idea of how is this useful to scholars uh, <laughs> they're like uh, like I have benefited from so many. True scholars, so and then there's kind of like the more, like maybe the less formal way of the term scholar, but uh, I'm, I'm just at the very, very most, I'm simply just one more person along for the ride. My, my real passion for this book um, is for those last two groups, skeptics and truth seekers. A lot of times we've been handed a worldview that is void of a, like an awareness of these literary tools like a lot of times we're trained, like literally in our training, our Bible college or whatever, we might be told like, this isn't what people are interested in. They can't really handle this knowledge. Like you don't get the time to teach people this stuff. Like just, just teach them good theology. Like we're kind of told and trained to avoid these, like teaching isn't that big of a deal. The data doesn't matter. And and I appreciate a lot of things that are trying to be conveyed in those spaces, but actually it really does matter. If the Bible is as important to us as we say it is in so many of these spaces and in traditions like I'm a part of, the Bible is in so many ways, everything. I mean, outside of Jesus, the Bible is this, it is the doorway that gets us into that relationship and helps us know what life of faith looks like. I mean, if it's that important, then understanding how the Bible works obviously has to be just as important. So these details aren't something that we can just avoid or skip over or save people the time, like people, and, and, and honestly, people are smart enough. They're, they're They can handle all this stuff. Half the time they're smarter than, than all the folks that are leading these churches. Like they can actually handle literary devices just fine. So I, I just think those conversations are so, are so helpful and and both for the skeptic because I mean, the skeptic is the skeptic because they have legitimate questions. I mean, that's what this book is all about, is validating questions. Questions are are actually a, a doorway, a key. Uh, it's it's part of what opens up. So the skeptic, they're not far away. They probably feel like they're far away from the Bible, far away from the story, far away. And yet the skeptic is probably like closer than anybody else because they're so much more ready to engage the depth of everything that we've looked at in the podcast from, you know, when we were in session one, we used to always say, what problems do we have in this story? There's something that's almost inherently not, and not skeptical in this negative way, but there's, there's an inherent skepticism to, okay, but a talking snake, Mm -hmm. come on, really? Like a talking snake. Um, So learning how that skepticism is not, not a bad thing. It's actually maybe one of your greatest tools to, to step into wonder and encounter the text in beautiful ways. I I love that. And then truth seekers, there are people that there's a whole nother group of people that they wouldn't describe themselves as a skeptic. Like we're, we're here, we're in, we love Jesus. We love the Bible, but they also have this awareness. Like, but I feel like there's definitely something more like here, here we are. We've packaged this nicely. I'm fine with, I'm fine with what we're doing but I also know that there's, there's more than this. Like there's more going on. There's, there's something deeper and wider taking place. And so I I love that, um, that, that what this book hopefully can do for that group of people too. And, And I don't want to discount. I think I'm just, I feel so awkwardly insecure when I consider my book in relation to a word like scholars, but I have I have I have good friends and they've been more than generous and they are scholars. They have letters after their name. They are the people. And they say, Marty, you, you too have a voice that's that's valuable and the way you've packaged it is different than the people that I work with every single day on a scholastic level. And I appreciate that too, and that's beautiful. And if that's something that, that God can do, that's awesome too. But man, whenever I consider scholars, I get really insecure. But that's just me being honest. <laughs> Well, in, in a lot of ways, you have an advantage
0: over scholars in that you can take some leaps that they're not really able to do and find like archaism episode with Brian David, like you can't really do that in scholarship in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, and and you have freedom to explore those sorts of ideas.
1: Yep. Or, or, or Pardes would be another example if you get into session three of the, I mean, if you've been through that in the podcast, that that's another great example of something that just to be able to that's where ideas come from like like the work of scholarship is needs to be it has to be committed to the science of the mechanics of how the process works but there's a whole other part of this it's about the imagination and scholarship really like it's not that they can't they can but the process of scholarship it isn't designed to so so there's another there's another thing when it comes to the imagination or repackaging something or rewording something or dreaming about this connection that, I mean, a real scholar, I'll never be able to do the work, but somebody might hear it and they go, oh yes, I know exactly what to do that in an academically viable way. And that makes me, well, that makes me excited. When my when my buddy at Princeton says he loves this or that idea, I, I go, oh, well, that excites me because I will never be able to do what you're going to do with it, but he's going to be able to do stuff with it that is so much more Potent in a lot of ways, and I that that that's why I write this stuff. That's that's why I share resources and ideas. If that can help us, it's beautiful.
2: I knew that using the word scholar scholar would make you bristle a little bit, and you did it anyway. <laughs> I did, um, but I just just to throw in, you know, as a scholar, even though it's in a completely different um, discipline, um, we st- we all start the same way, and that's with a question. And that's what I think is beautiful about your book is that it encourages that mm. of scholarship. So mm. Um, mm. we all start with that that PICO question. Mm. So that drives our search. Mm. It, it we don't always land in the in the answer that we anticipated. Mm-hmm. In fact, our PICO question often is not the title of our paper. It's not the title of our work. It's not the title of what we publish because we've we've discovered something completely different than mm. what we had originally anticipated so um, I love the word scholar because mm. I don't feel that um, you're giving yourself enough credit there um, you what you're doing is encouraging scholarship beyond just um, maybe that high level mm. um, academic level that we're kind of attributing to them yeah um, it's it's a body of of discovery, so good job.
1: <laughs> I can appreciate that a lot. I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing those words.
2: Yeah. So, just a little tag onto that question. Um, it's a kind of a hard little tag, but try it out. Who is the book not for? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, somebody asked me. I'll be. I'll be honest. I'm gonna. I'm gonna plagiarize a comment. Um, uh, from one of my favorite teachers, uh, we'll just call him Bob Rel, uh so I don't get in trouble for quoting. I'm just kidding; it's Rob Bell. But um, he he <laughs> said somewhere, uh, he when he was writing books, his publisher would ask people would ask, "But what's the what's the target audience?" And he would say, "Humans," because um, he felt like everybody wrestles on some level with the fundamental questions that we're wrestling with or asking. Um, that's probably less true maybe of, of my book, but I I, really about the only people that if you, the book is for anybody that has an interest in the Bible. So who's the book not for? And I mean like any interest in the Bible period. So I guess if you have no interest in the Bible, like you're not even, you're not even interested or curious at all. I know you're curious about so many other beautiful things. So that's excellent. Um, but if you have like no curiosity about the Bible period, the book's probably not for you. The other group, I would say, two whole groups. I'm going to give you two whole groups this okay. book's not for. This book is, for, is not for the group that's like, I got this all figured out. Like, I got I got answers. I don't have questions. I have answers. Okay, good. But then, then, then rock your answers. Like, just do it. If that's working for you, that is great. But you are not, this book was not written for you. Now, this book was written for, like you just said, scholars, skeptics, Um, what's my subtitle? The 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 Wounded, the Wary and the Longing for More. Like this book is for so many people. Anybody that has questions, anybody that wants to have questions, and anybody that has the slightest interest in the Bible whatsoever, believer or not, wounded and having left the church or deep into it and a pastor. Um, but hey, if you if you if you don't have room for questions. I remember when I very first started Bayma, long before it was a podcast, we were just on campus we We're on Washington State University and we were doing the Bema thing. There was no podcast. It was just a class and, but there was a local pastor, um, that said, you know, the problem I have with that man's class is he asked the questions, what if, and he said, if I ever utter the words, one, what if from the pulpit leave my church? And I I remember thinking, man, if I ever stop asking the questions, what if? Stop engaging my material. <laughs> it's just such a divide. So it, that's that's where I'm landing. That's that's what the book is for. So if 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 you're not interested in the questions, if you got all the answers and you and you're completely comfortable, then that my book. There will be a lot of other beautiful books out there, and I mean that. I don't mean that in a passive aggressive way, but my book will not be. Your cup of tea. All
2: right. Well, that kind of takes us right into um, what you just mentioned, your your subtitle. So there are many communities and organizations and even churches that have started their journey to be a more trauma-informed culture. And you and I have talked about that a little bit. Can you explain um, who you had in mind when you acknowledged in your subtitle, the wounded, the wary, and the longing for more?
1: I can remember when the publisher suggested, I'll be, I'll be more honest. Okay. I didn't even come up with that. The publisher did. And I remember reading it. And again, there were all these moments I was dreading. Oh gosh, I was dreading the editing process. I was dreading the cover art. I was dreading the title. Uh, There were a few things I was told in my writing cohorts. They said, just brace yourself when it comes to the title just brace yourself. You're going to hate, you're going to hate it. It's it's like, it's like you've given birth to this baby and somebody else wants to name it. And they said, just publishers know what they're doing. So I was like, I was braced for the worst. And they sent out, we said, we got two title ideas. And I was like, oh no, here it comes. (laughs) And I read, and that was the first one of the two. And I said, oh, that, that, yes, that, that resonates with like, they got the essence of the book and, um, and yeah, I, I, it was almost, yeah, it was kind of like more, I was dreading this moment and it ended up becoming like a really moving moment because I'm like, yeah, that's, that is who I hope this book really resonates with the wounded. Yeah. Yes. Because bad readings of the Bible have wounded so many people and they have been told that either they've got two options. That is the God of the Bible. The woundedness they experienced is the Bible or the Bible is completely invalid. Both options are terrible. Um, and so I loved seeing that my book might be a guide for the wounded, a guide for the wary. Yes, because we're all just like that was probably my category. That probably is my story. Of the three titles, that was probably my, I was just, I was wary. Like the evangelical world I was trained in was not working for me. It was uncompelling. When I kind of went through my own, what the kids would call deconstruction today. um, I had my own period of that 20, 25 years ago. 20 years ago. I'm not that old yet. Uh, And, and yes, uh, I, yeah, the wary, yes, because there's something far more life-giving Or something far more vibrant like this. This stuff is, again, to quote one of my teachers, like this is the deepest stuff out there. Like this is the this is the biggest stuff that humanity's ever wrestled with. How dare we make it boring and exhausting and anything that makes you ask the question, when is lunch? Like what what a horrible, tragic. So I, I loved that. And then the longing for more. I mean that almost gave me this feeling of like there's all this untapped potential but make no mistake it's out there like we're longing for more cuz there is more we're longing for more cuz there's work to be done we're longing for more cuz yeah I, and I so I loved the those three groups when they when they took shape in the subtitle um I just went oh it, it was it was helpful for me too so hats off again they nailed all three experiences that I was dreading Navpress they, they killed it. They killed the cover art. They killed the, I mean, killed in a good way. Like they just nailed the process of editing and title and, and cover design. All the things I was dreading. It was, it was a beautiful experience.
2: Excellent. Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about a, a theoretical framework that I use in my world. And it will make now sense. Now we're talking. I'm ready. Okay, I love it. <laughs> um, you may have heard of it. Um, it's called Novice to Expert by Patricia Benner. Are you familiar with that?
1: I know the name. I believe Pat I could Benner. be wrong, but I think the name sounds familiar. But I don't. The 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 process does
2: not. Okay. She's actually um, she's a nursing theorist that has watched nurses um, go from novice to expert. So she has defined. Um, Different the experiences that to grow in um, their competencies and their knowledge. You start at the novice, that beginner level, then they're advanced beginner, then they become more competent and proficient, and then finally expert. And we talk about this all the time in the healthcare arena. Um, and when I was reading your book. Um, I just saw this theory. Um, One of the things we don't talk about this theory is how it flips upside down when the expert becomes a novice again. So, say, me, myself, you know, I just stepped into a director role and um, I had to learn something new. So, I was no longer an expert. I was a novice in a certain part of my role. And there is some difficulty that comes along with that. And one of the greatest challenges is when that when those gears do shift. So, um, that being said, um, in your book, you mentioned. Well, actually, I'll just quote you. So, we often adapt the learning process to conceal the fact that we should not be as supremely confident as we are. Mm-hmm. We find ways to center ourselves as the experts. And so, knowing that that novice to expert theory theory that we find problematic. When, when the healthcare professional drops back, can you talk, talk about how readers can best navigate that expert to novice crash of shame and insecurity?
1: Oh, yeah. And I mean, one of my favorite sayings of Jesus, and I think, I don't know if I'm nailing the interpretation of this, but I don't think I'm out of bounds. Like one of my favorite things that Jesus says, I believe he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, every teacher of the law... That becomes a student or becomes a disciple in some translations. Every teacher of the law that becomes a student is like a store, like a a homeowner that brings out of his storehouses new treasures as well as old. And I, I believe in that language, without getting tricky or clever or crafty, I believe sitting right in front, like, is this idea of once you're a teacher of the law, how difficult is, is it to become a student all over again? How, diff- how difficult is it to make that leap from expert to novice? Um, I don't know. I think your question was like, how to help people navigate that crash. And I man, I don't know if I have great answers other than to hopefully trust the trust that process and model it. Like, I hope I can model that for others. I hope others can model it for others because, well, we just, so it was in our, was it in our launch team or was it? Oh, it wasn't. It was on one of my posts that I made the other day and somebody asked a similar question. Like they said just the other day, they said, um, I feel like my understanding of biblical context has changed so much over the last, you know, decade of my, my life and my training, my ministry experience. How do you deal with the fact that your understanding has changed over the years? And and it got it was this comment that got all of this like a, a lot of interaction. People really saw that comment, like liked it, and and the conversation that ensued. Obviously, that comment resonates with people. Is my point? And I mean, one of the things that I said was I, I just come to expect that as a part of the process. Like that's not. I think we. I think we experience that and we get disoriented or we think it's a sign that we're confused or, or not in the right place. But that's what a healthy life of faith, anybody that's healthy would be learning. Anybody that's healthy would be evolving. Anybody that's healthy would be dancing between this world of, like the moment I become the expert, like the most unhealthy thing in the world would be to simply set up camp and like, of course, I want to go back in and learn something. And it doesn't mean I'll ever have to lose the expertise that I had, just that I need to go back in and learn something new all over again. Um, to, to realize that that's a, I would expect that I would celebrate that experience. And that's made it easier. Like, I'm trying to go back and figure out, like, how did I do it to begin with? And I don't know, Aaron, but I will tell you that I've been watching other people like find the I don't know when I say liberation, that feels like a too grand of a word, but mm-hmm. to to watch other people be like, oh, wait, that I should celebrate that. Oh, I can lean into that. That just makes me want to do that even more because it sets us free to keep diving in and taking chances and learning new things and asking big questions and letting ourselves be changed and not letting us be ashamed because I changed. I think we focus on the fact, well, if I changed, it means I was wrong before. Well, of course, that's what it means to be human, to grow and to, and so celebrate the change. Don't be ashamed of the previous lack of wherever you were. Um, Celebrate the fact that you're alive and growing and evolving. And I hope, I hope I'm not the same person 10 years from now. What a, what a lousy waste of a decade if I'm 50 and I am the same. The I have the same theology, the same ideas. I'm still spouting the same content in my podcast. If Jesus chooses to let podcast last that long, like what a what a lousy experience. But I don't know. I don't know if I have a lot of great thoughts about how to do it. Only once you experience it, it is this wonderfully freeing. And and somehow, and I don't know how this is, but somehow it actually helps you become less judgmental, which I do think is, is what I'd like to do with my next book or two is talk about that shift. But there is something about this experience that not only does it free me, it also allows me to appreciate others with where they are in their journey and, and, and really be able to celebrate that too. And so, yeah, just super, it's one of the best things, one of the best things that I've experienced in this whole, this whole process.
2: This transitions really well. So Pat Benner, also in that novice to expert, when we're when we're doing it in the right way, when we're looking at that theory from the novice and advancing through, she actually says that there's a combination of that strong educational foundation, but then you add on the personal experiences. That's what carries you through towards mm. the um, that expert. You have to have both, and you can actually do or gain knowledge and skills without knowing. What you're doing, you can know how, but uh-huh. not uh-huh. the uh-huh. the substance behind it. You can you can go through the motions, and so that really, I I felt like that translated very well into what you were discussing um, when you were addressing pastors and other leaders or people that have um, really had a nice solid biblical foundation um, over the years and how this book can be a little startling um, at times if they've learned something completely new or some tools that might turn something that they held really tightly upside down. Um, But I also agree that that personal experience Um, We're not the same as we were 10 years ago. So I I love that. And that translates into or transitions into um, the next part of this question is um, for those who are white knuckling their expertise um, and really struggling with letting, you know, letting loose that grip, how can they step into humility and find, in your words in the book, you said, a less arrogant, less ignorant, and less immature posture?
1: Uh, That's a really good question. Um, If they're at a place where they're open enough, because we know, we know, like I've been that person before too. I'll be that person as as quickly as next week in a lot of ways. Like, it's not that I, I'm, I'm not that person day in and day out in my own experience right now. But if we're, we have an awareness of how part of the reason why we white knuckle this stuff is we have an inherent awareness of like, but if this one thing isn't true, it now leads to 10 more questions. And now I'm not even sure if any of this is, is going to stand up. And it just feels like this huge house of cards. And so we white knuckle to like convince ourselves and everybody else watching that it actually is like super strong and, and super strong. Cause I'm just holding on for everything. Like we know, we know, like we know that there's a million questions behind our, our arrogant, like like assurance, self assurance, self righteousness. So, if we're if we trust at all, it's going to take a little bit of trust. It's going to take one might say a mustard seed. <laughs> um, it only is going to take a little, but it is going to take some trust in the gospel truth of how we're beloved and how it's okay and how this isn't. I was never in charge anyway. So even if I'm wrong, Jesus isn't, and we're all going to be all right. To it, Like if we trust that gospel truth at all, we loosen up our grip, we let that stuff go. And, and I don't know too many people that let go for a moment, take a few steps and like, oh, this is too much, and then grab a hold of everything again. It's usually like this. I wish I could talk from experience. I'm not a bungee jumper. I'm not a skydiver. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. But I would imagine there's that moment where you have to let go. And then it's just, I would imagine... I would imagine. Brent Brent Billings, have you ever skydived? I have not, but I'm thinking I know what we're going to do for the Baymar Retreat. (laughs) Oh, no, we're not. No, no, that's not. That
0: is not happening. Look what you
2: got yourself into.
1: Uh, I will refuse. I draw lines.
0: I draw lines. I'm pretty sure at that time of year in that part of the country, it's going to be way too cold to be jumping out of a plane at 10,000 feet anyway. So you're probably safe this time, but...
1: Bless the Lord. (laughs) Uh, But I would imagine there is a moment after you do let go where that's where the exhilaration and the sheer joy and... And not that this process is full of sheer joy, or spiritual skydiving, but but I think there, like, I think we white knuckle stuff because of our insecurity, which is also, by the way, what gives me a ton of grace for myself when I'm in those spaces, or anybody else that's in those spaces. It's it's the most difficult when they're weaponizing it against people and hurting others, but when it's just there, I mean, you can usually feel, you can sense, you can see that insecurity in yourself. You can see it in somebody else and you can extend grace. Cause we all know what it's like to be afraid. We all know what it's like to have questions that we don't really want to wrestle with or acknowledge. So I, I think that's another part. And I did want to write the book in such a way. Yeah. So, somebody, usually somebody just has to say it. Like I'm usually in a room and somebody just has to acknowledge that thing that I'm ignoring. And that's often enough for me to go. Yeah, you're right. And And so I hope that's true, not just in the book itself, but just in the way that we pursue Jesus and the way that we talk to each other. I hope that those things are true.
2: Excellent. I love how you address that in the book. Um, One of my favorite lines in the book is, our dogma, our absolute certainty in our own theological vantage point suffocates a vibrant faith. Mm. Why is certainty so mission-critical in our current culture, and how can we begin to deconstruct that without losing our faith altogether?
1: Well, I'm sure that there are larger cultural, sociological—that I am not an expert or equipped to comment on, comment on. I, I think theologically— Um there's a thing that happened almost exactly 100 years ago when when culture was shifting, when textual criticism and liberal scholarship was on the rise and then the Scopes trial. And what we've spent the last 100 of years doing is trying to really assert our belief in the inspiration, the truth of, it's given us a very, on one hand, a defensive posture and then an offensive posture of apologetics. We have postured ourselves as, be ready to give an answer, be ready to give an explanation, be ready to prove, prove the Bible is right, prove your faith is right, prove that it's true, prove that God is—like, guess a very—we have a very defensive—and that's why certainty is so important in that worldview is because I have to be—like, I was trained growing up in youth group and fundamentalist Christian subculture— I was absolutely trained to be ready to give a explanation for the hope that you have to present the gospel at any moment to know my faith so well that I could there, there was certainty was absolutely the only incentive, the only, like that was what was incentivized. Um, having answers, not questions, answers, like the world has made us question, but we have to prove that the questions are invalid. And I, I, I can appreciate so much of what drove that, and I can appreciate the heart behind so much of what I was handed and taught growing up. But that is so actually unhelpful for ever talking to the, like the part of, like I would say to speak to people's hearts, and I do mean that, but the very essence of what it means to be human, the the deepest stuff that we wrestle with, you don't address that with certainty. And if there's anything that postmodernity has taught us, it's that we, how little we actually know about material things that we think we should actually know. And you actually get into it, and you're like, actually, we don't really know what we think we know. And so, well, let's be more honest about the deepest things we wrestle with as human beings. It's that authenticity where you actually, it's that, that's that loving of one another. It's that affirming Well, that's where First John says nobody's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's presence lives in us, and and then people do see people see God in us. That's not because of our certainty. Like that's not what John's talking about there in First John is not. It's because we have all these answers to everybody's questions. Because we know apologetics so well, that's how people see God. No, it's this interconnection that we have with other people. It's it's the presence of God living in us and through us, and so we're not going to do that with certainty. But that, I mean, we have definitely built, we've built an entire evangelical world around certainty because it was a war. We were at war. Uh, we were at a culture war. We were in, in, we were in an intellectual war. We we're in a theological war. And we're going to win that by being right. And that means we better be certain of our rightness or else we're going to lose the war. And the truth of the matter is, is there really, what we really weren't at war in, on any of those fronts. Um, we were inviting, we we should have been inviting people to dinner. So anyway, those are probably more eloquent, too eloquent poetic of thoughts for that question. But that's my thought.
2: I think that you held such kindness and reverence towards people that are going to maybe unraveling some of their certainty as they work through this book. Maybe if it's for the first time, because this is something that they're not familiar with because they're not a podcast person or um, Mm -hmm. on YouTube. So I think, um, the way you handled them at the end of the book and just with such care, um, that's the important stuff. That's the good stuff. It's about, you know, the people, it's what you always say. It's about the people. And so I appreciate that.
1: Well, it's the beauty of writing the book. Like I mentioned earlier about how a book gives you the chance to stop and to pause and to really think about, is that what I really want to say? Is that really how I want to say it? Because the fact of the matter is, I mean, I know how many people listen to our podcast or will be reading this book and they're wounded and they're wary. And part of that is they're also angry. And you can even hear me, like, as you ask me these questions, Aaron, my responses are not nearly as metered, as thought out. They're more off the cuff. They're not nearly as polished. And you can hear in my responses, some of like the remnants of my own deconstruction. You can hear, like, if you get behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the thing there, you can definitely hear that there's some latent frustration and some of my own anger at the certainty of evangelical, like you, you can hear that. And, and I've done, I've worked on this enough. My heart has softened that it's not quite as bold and as blatant as it used to be. So I, I know that other people carry that. I know they do. I get I get those emails weekly all the time of people working through that emotion and that emotion is valid, but I'm glad that that came through in the book. And part of the beauty of writing is I may have started there, but then you get to like step back and go, no, like we got to provide enough space for people to not just be right or wrong, but to step into something better, like better readings of the Bible, better readings of the Bible, better readings, And so and my editors were very helpful at that. They would tell me this feels angry, that tone. And that that's the fun stuff that I've discovered in the the work of writing is the product becomes, it can, it can become safer and more invitational. And I do like that part of, of the book and the writing. And I did feel like it was, a, I didn't feel like they were taking away my tone. I felt like, no, that is what I really want to say. And they just helped me catch those things and say it and so hats off to teamwork and the beauty of being able to take the time
2: awesome Brent Faulkner at the very beginning of our Bay Mall journey kind of starting this what we were calling deconstruction he he rephrased it and I he's I'm, we always joke that we're plagiarizing people I don't know who he plagiarized but he said <laughs> it's not deconstruction he likes to think of it as composting. Um, (laughs) so, um, I've, it, it rings true even more and more. And even when I was reading that last chapter, I was like, this is, this is that composting that Brent Faulkner was talking about. This something beautiful is coming out of something that's painful and there's still angst and we're still going to be triggered by some of those feelings that we have through that process of that certainty that is unraveling a bit. So thank you. The last? Yeah, now
1: I'm going to plagiarize that in my next book. I'm going to use that, <laughs> and everybody will know where it came from.
2: Yeah. Um, do you have any commentary on what's next, and how does this book contribute to believers looking for more and more like God with each passing generation?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll have to have you ask that second question on its own here in a moment. Okay, What's sure. next? Um, I, honestly, I don't know, because I think we're all publisher, me, my agent— Other people, whatever, I don't know, but we're all waiting to see if this is a useful tool and it might not be like people may not want to need a book or want a book or whatever. Um, I'm optimistic, but if it's not a helpful tool, then we'll just keep moving on. And that's honestly, I think I, I think I would be just fine with that. I don't think that would be hard to stomach or accept. If it is a helpful tool and there's another book, we'll have to see what we can convince People to want to publish, <laughs> but I I have hopes. Like there, there there's something beyond this. Um, there's asking better questions of the Bible. If I have my way, I'll tell I'll tell you what, what what will happen if I have my way, and I don't know if I'll have my way. But but here we go. I think there's a book after this where we talk about. Okay, so we asked questions of the Bible. And that feels like really, like you were just talking about, like that feels disorienting, like we have to wrestle with our certainty and the Bible matters a lot. But on another level, that's also like kind of safe because the Bible is this abstract thing we hold at arm's distance, right? Yeah. So I think there's another part of the conversation that's about what happens on my insides when I learn to be okay with just the idea of asking. Something happens inside of me when I become more curious and I ask more questions. So if I had my way, the, the next book would build off of this idea of asking questions, and it would just be a book on curiosity, which leads to another conversation potentially in another book, if God so wills it, where we talk about, okay, so why does curiosity... Make me less of a jerk, because it does. When I get curious and I trust curiosity with my own story, I become far more curious about everybody else's story. When I when I learn how to be more gracious with myself, it it's almost addi- beautifully addictive. And now I become more gracious with others. I just extend the same grace I've experienced to other people, and because that's ultimately what matters. Like how we read the Bible, that's. There's a reason, like that's not the end and of itself. Like the the, a better reading of the Bible matters because it impacts people. So what we're really getting at is not biblical data. It's not literary devices. It's not. What we're really trying to get at is how do we love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself? How do we truly mm-hmm. build a life that Paul says it all hinges on one command Love your neighbor as yourself. If this really is about love, like Paul and John and Jesus keep insisting, like we've got to figure out, I, I, I don't think we're doing a, swell, like a great job at that. Personally, I don't think that's a radical statement to make. I don't think the church is known for their unbelievable hospitality, generous spirit, undying compassion in the world. That's not our reputation, and that matters. Um, Now, it just so happens that the Bible is the thing we use to justify such bad behavior. So we needed to start with the Bible. But my hope is that we don't end with the Bible. We need to end with our own crazy uh, lifestyles and ways that we interact with other people, the ways we love others. Love God, love others, love our families and our friends and love our enemies. These are the things that matter the most. You had a second question in there. What was it?
2: Yeah, you you really answered it. Um, it's really about the transformative piece about what's next because you quoted in your book you you um, looking for more and more like God with each passing generation. Yes, and you really answered that. That's that's quite beautiful. Any other thoughts or comments on that that quote?
1: Yeah, no, that's just what I yearn for. If and ultimately, if the things that I can do for whatever brief moment stop, I have here on this rocketing space rock through the galaxy that we call earth. I get, uh, if I, if we can at all contribute to becoming a more compassionate, loving group of people, if, if people could see God, see God when they look at us, mm. not truth, God. And in that they would, they would see truth, but we've, we, we've been so concerned that the world will see truth that we've forgotten that what they're supposed to see is God, Jesus, when they look at us. And uh, so anything that can help us get back on track would be great.
2: Excellent. Well, my last class question is for Brent Billings. Yes! Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've been enjoying this uh, this Solomon Inquisition. <laughs>
2: I just want to know your experience through this process. You've been a great support. You were mentioned in the book. Um, you're copyrighted in the book. You took the famous photo.
0: I do take a lot of photos of Marty.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: what are you? Pr- what are you most proud of? What are you? You kind of shared about your hopes for the book. Um, this is your chi- your chance to brag a little bit on it and and tell us what you're excited about.
0: Well, I didn't have a huge role in it. Um, I did look at Marty's earlier manuscripts uh, to some extent, I have learned that it is difficult for me as the Bema liturgy has also taught me this, uh, large, extensive bodies of text are difficult for me to edit in a timely manner. So (laughs) I did not get to look at Marty's book as closely as I would have preferred. Um, I do so much copy editing, but usually they're, they're pretty short pieces and, uh, yeah i've I've definitely learned some things about myself and my process and my time management in tackling such large pieces of work um, so I don't know if that if that is part of the experience yeah I mean the content isn't necessarily surprising anyone who's been through Bayema whether the podcast or been on a trip or whatever it's not like anything in here is going to be particularly surprising um i I do appreciate the like as marty was saying like you you get to stop and you get to think about your words and get to consider the impact of of you know a specific way of phrasing things how it's gonna so you know it is a different form it's it's a more polished more considered um version of what we talk about in the podcast um but it's not necessarily surprising for anyone so i don't know um along with Marty, I was definitely surprised at how well the title selection went, how well the cover design went. Um, all of that has just been, you know, way better than, uh, any of us expected going into it. Um, and I was like, I'm like, I don't know why Marty's putting himself through this. Like why, like why give up all this control? Why do all this? And, and it's actually been a beautiful experience. Um in that regard. So
1: he may say he didn't contribute a whole lot to this process, <laughs> but when you get to the end and read my acknowledgments, there's a special section at the end and there are two individuals in it, my wife and Brent Billings. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> I just read that today.
1: <laughs>
0: oh gee. Well I mean, I yeah, sure. I did some things, of course, but um yeah, I mean let let's be realistic here. Marty is the He's the pastor voice. He's the one who puts so much more time into studying. Like it's seriously unbelievable how much Marty reads and studies. And you know, I have my own strengths. That's why I'm here. Um, but yeah, this this work. Um, it, it's yeah. I don't, whatever. You guys are making me uncomfortable. I don't like this.
2: <laughs> but think back to your very first Bayma episode. Was it zero or zero, zero or something like that? <laughs> if you can put yourself in Brent and Marty's shoes on that day and, and then fast forward to today and we're talking about your book, how do you guys feel? That's pretty incredible.
0: When we recorded that very first episode, the negative one episode, which we had to record just to get something in the feed so we could publish it. Um... I I think if you would have pressed me, like, I knew how compelling everything was. Um, I had seen the first Baymaw class that I was in um, grow to a larger group of people the next time around. uh, I was on the 2016 trip, which was by far the most participants Marty would ever had on a trip. And I'm like, okay, there's some momentum. Like I knew there was potential there, but I think what I I would have predicted was like a handful of college students um, who are involved in um, various locations, the impact campus ministries is a part of, and maybe some of their friends or family members. Uh, but yeah, never, never ever could have imagined what it has actually become. I will say I've never heard of Kokomo, Indiana before. Um, <laughs> And that, that goes for a lot of places on our map. Um, and you know, part of that is my fault for not, uh, taking my geography more seriously, but yeah, the, the, the number of people that I've been able to hear from and the places that I've learned about and the cultures that I've had insight into, um, yeah, it's, it's just so richly rewarding, um, being a part of this journey with so many people. And really I just happened to be in on it a few years earlier because I happened to be in the right town at the right church and met the right people. So uh, like, I'm, I'm really, I'm really just on the same journey that everybody else is just a few, Mm -hmm. a few years ahead. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
2: Well, no pun intended, the impact that you, you both have had just is remarkable. Um, People, are doing things, they that transformation, you know, getting in the into the text and then letting it do things inside of them, and therefore they start doing things in the world around them because of that is pretty impactful. Even here in just Little Kokomo, Indiana, because of Bayma and because of your both of you have a um, the Lamentations episode um, inspired us to provide a countywide. Um, lament Christmas service every year, and mm. we have multiple churches participating now, um, and it has gained quite some traction. But we're providing a soft blue Christmas service on Winter Solstice mm. annually, so people can come that are that are wounded and and weary, and um, and needing a place to sh- where hope and grief and lament and loneliness can share space with. Um, The parts of Christmas that are very sacred and special and tender and quiet and and sad. And so that is fruit of the work you guys are doing every day, you know, and, and that's just a tiny little story. So we're grateful here just because we want to keep transforming and being different. And we want to be more and more like God every passing generation. So sometimes you guys minimize your role in this, but it is, it's bigger and you, you won't see it all. I won't see it all, but it, it's there. So we're, we're very appreciative speaking on behalf of all the people that have um, started composting. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, I can appreciate that because that I remember talking to one of my most influential voices and I remember him saying, I know you keep saying, thank you. I'm just doing my part. And now I can appreciate what that – like before I was like, oh, he's just being humble and stupid. But now I appreciate what he's saying because all that stuff you mentioned is just Jesus. All, all we're wanting to do is be faithful with the part that we play and taking some risks and putting them putting things out there and trying to steward what we're doing um, so that it can be helpful for others. So that other people can then do what? Do their part. I'm doing my part because somebody looked at me and said – yeah, I'm just doing my part. And then he said, are you doing your part? And I'm like, oh, I don't even know what that means. I eventually figured it out. Um, so it's just Jesus and yeah. everybody doing their piece and their part. And so if we can help anybody else, I mean, you guys turn it into the blue Christmas, like that's a beautiful example. If there's anybody else out there, yeah, do your part. And then, and then who knows what Jesus does with each one of those, but just awesome.
2: Yeah.
0: Bless God. I love being the spark that leads groups like yours to do things that I never would have imagined.
2: Yep. Well, keep sparking then. We we appreciate it.
0: <laughs> okay. We
2: appreciate it. So that's all I have. I um, am grateful to get to co-host today. That's been fantastic.
0: Yes. Jokes about hosting and guesting aside, it <laughs> has been a pleasure <laughs> to have you here, Aaron. Um, it, it, was, it was great to have your perspective and your questions and I mean you've you've spent quite a bit of time with Marty's book um leading the launch team and and taking taking one everyone on that team through the book um developing questions for it and and digging in so um yeah it, it was great to to have your perspective to to ask Marty all these great questions Thank you. And especially to make him feel uncomfortable about his (laughs) his application to scholarship. No kidding.
2: (laughs) Yeah. There you go. I hope I didn't make you too uncomfortable.
0: I think Marty was hoping this was going to be a short episode. I don't know what he was thinking, but you uh, can
2: cut a lot of it out if you want.
0: (laughs) Yeah, We should have known better. (laughs) All right. Well, that'll do it for this time. Uh, Of course, uh, all the links that we talked about, uh, we've got a couple of episodes that we've referenced of course marty's book and a few other things that all that will be in the show notes and if you want to get a hold of marty you can find him on twitter at marty solomon i'm at eibcb uh are you on twitter should i should i throw that in there
2: i am on twitter and i'll give you the link for that
0: okay that'll be in the show notes too um you can find all of that at baymonddiscipleship.com so thanks for joining us on the baymond podcast we'll talk to you again soon